Welcome to The Project Space, a podcast featuring some of the remarkable artists who have participated in the Project Space residency here at the Visual Studies Workshop in Rochester, New York. The Project Space residency has served both regional, national, and international artists for many years, providing a studio space and access to VSW facilities. I'm Ernez Davis. I'm a visual artist and the assistant curator of education and public programs here at VSW. For each episode, I will be in conversation with artists to discuss their background, their practice, and how the Project Space Residency has impacted their works. In this episode, I will be speaking with the artist Lily Chin. During our conversation, we touched on how a particularly unique experience as a solo Project Space resident allowed her space for contemplation and experimentation. One of the many things I enjoyed about this conversation was learning about Lily's process and the role long walks along the Genesee River played in changing how she approached her project. During her time here, Lily traveled throughout Rochester and within our building here at the Visual Studies Workshop. So you will hear her refer to Jessica Johnston, our director, who assisted her movement in both instances. Lily and I also refer to installation images of the works she created while in residence. These are still works in progress, but check out her website for those latest updates. That link is in our show notes. Lily refers to various photo processes as well, such as anthotypes and cyanotypes. Just in case you may be unfamiliar with those, anthotypes are images made from a photographic process that uses light-sensitive plant materials. And cyanotypes are images that are made using a photo process that involves an ultraviolet light source, such as the sun. I am excited to share this conversation with Lily, where she walks us through her interdisciplinary and sensorial approach to her practice. My name is Lily Chen. I was a resident at the Visual Studies Workshop in July 2022. I'm from New York City, but I also spent my teenage years in Singapore and I grew up in Oregon, so I'm kind of from all over. I am a artist and filmmaker. I work with many different materials. I do installation art and my work is often concerned with nature and memory, time and impressions of environments. Well, again, Lily, thank you so much. I am so excited to talk with you. We were talking off podcast about where you are now. You are in Galveston, Texas at a residency. And so one of my first questions is to you, because you are someone who has a lot of experience doing residencies and speaking generally and not specifically to VSW. I'm I'm interested in how you use residencies, what roles they play in your practice and how your experience has been this year in particular? Yeah, um, it's a lot. Uh, (laughs) So residencies have become increasingly important to my practice, especially in the past couple of years. Since the pandemic, I've been on many residencies and they really give me an opportunity to experiment and also really utilize the space and get to know the local environment that I'm visiting. Mm -hmm. So usually I'm very influenced by the environment. 
Um, I like to learn about the ecology and nature surrounding the environment, but I also make use of the facilities in a residency if there is one, which is, you know, something I really exhausted when I was at BSW. <laughs> and it's really a great place for me to just kind of step away from the crampness of being in New York City or just the very thick rhythm that I have sometimes when I'm teaching Trying to juggle my academic life and my studio practice is not always that easy because my academic life can be very demanding. Hmm. Um, so I use residencies as a way to find like a new environment, but also have time and space. And I would say that VSW was really extraordinary because I had like the whole building to myself. It was a quiet month. Mm -hmm. very quiet very so very quiet. quiet you could hear a pin drop um and i was lonely at first but then it just became like this whole place that i could use which was amazing this year i've been doing a lot more residencies than i usually do because i'm taking a break from my academic life to really focus on my work mm. now i'm in galveston but since VSW, I've been to like two other residencies. So this is like my fourth residency mm -hmm. starting from July. <laughs> so it's a lot. <laughs> I did the two other residencies in Scotland, which was really amazing. And VSW um, was kind of like the beginning of that sort of wave. Hmm. So I was at Rochester, then I was on the west coast of Scotland, then on the east coast of Scotland, and now I'm in Galveston. Wow. I've never been to Scotland, so I'm just going to assume that, that they're quite different places, mm -hmm. even maybe like the East versus West of, of Scotland. Wow. What have you noticed in terms of the difference in how you're working in these spaces and how you spend your time during each one? But also, has there been a progression this year? But also, since you do work in response to your environment, is it more along the lines of a shift? Yeah. Um, so I don't usually stack this many residencies in a row. This is kind of unusual. And, you know, everybody experiences residencies differently, mm -hmm. um, artist residencies differently. I thrive better in longer residencies okay. uh, or best. Um, this one that I'm in is 10 months. So I'm going to be here for the long haul, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. And that's part of the mission of GAR to, to provide really long access to artists. Um, and VSW was a month. And then when I was at Cove Park, that was a week. And then Hospital Field, that was two weeks. Hmm. Um, shorter residencies in Scotland were really, they were really, really different. And um, like you said, the environment is also very different. And going from Rochester to Scotland was really kind of like a right angle. And in ways I was taking a lot of what I had experienced in BSW, thinking I should transplant that to the West Coast of Scotland, but it wasn't really so fluid to do that because environments were so different. Yeah. Both of them are Northern. So, you know, there's, there's a kind of consistency. Um, but, but there were incidences um, just in terms of things that I've been thinking about already when I was working at BSW, such as human encroachment on nature uh, and uh, man's effect on nature. I was looking a lot at the Genesee river and thinking about, contamination in the Genesee River and silver contamination. Mm -hmm. And when I went over to the west coast of Scotland, I was I was in this idyllic place that was um, really close to the Royal Navy. So 
you know, when I looked out the window, I was observing this tranquil landscape that I thought was healing and beautiful and nurturing and placid. And I realized there were submarines with torpedoes underneath. Wow. Yeah. Um, so th this kind of conflict uh, between man and nature's something that uh, sort of carried over from what I'd been observing a little bit when I was at BSW. Mm -hmm. And then when I went over to the east coast of Scotland, that was also really different. The east coast of Scotland is a lot more craggy than the west coast, which feels like lighter. There's more air. Mm -hmm. It's got subterranean ecosystems. There's like rainforests on the west coast. Hmm. It was kind of like subtropical. On the East Coast, it's like older and you see like more standing stones. And when I was there, I think the more more photochemical based stuff that I'd been doing at VSW had kind of spilled over into the East Coast side because I had a little bit more time. And when I was there, I was making these anthotypes where I was making emulsion from food to um coat the paper and make exposures, which was kind of similar to making these salt prints that I was making at BSW. And then I did some pit firing. So um, with ceramics. So it, I mean, it came in waves, but I was also in these like short brackets of time where I think the shorter residencies, it's harder to really feel comfortable, like finding a balance between experiencing the landscape, taking it in, and then also producing the work. Yeah. So now that I'm at Galveston, I'm kind of taking everything that I did this summer and sort of digesting it and reweaving that into now the sort of sunny landscape, Galveston, Texas. That yeah. I'm um, sort of thinking about Galveston as another coastal place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Rochester in and of itself is not considered to be a coastal place, but has coasts a body of water, the Geneseo River, runs right through the city. And it's on the coast of one of the Great Lakes as well. I'm really interested in hearing about this this work that you've been making and this experimentation with emulsions because I ran into your work all over the building. There's this thing called the Chicken Run. It's a corridor that leads you from the parking lot into the building. And I remember opening up the door and seeing something in a glass container and a note that said, like, please don't move. And I was like, oh, what is this? And I went into the dark room and found something else that was, um, I'm going to use the word festering or, or the word like um, incubating. It was just, so it was kind of nice to encounter these things around. Um, but I also know that you were, you were having some issues with the process. For our listeners, can you talk as much as you as you would like in terms of those materials, what you were actually doing? Yeah, I mean, I came to VSW thinking about access to 16 millimeter facilities. Oh, great. I didn't immediately plan on working with alternative photographic processes. Oh. But I had been really trying to understand how to get to the, the basic aspects of celluloid if you will, yeah. um, thinking about the substrate, thinking about the emulsion, yeah. um, which naturally is going to lead you to photography, because if you really want to break that down, you have to get to photography first. Yeah. Um, so I found myself doing a lot of salt prints and really rethinking the emulsion and thinking the base that I was working mm. with. So to explain what I was doing, I was having to rethink the celluloid base. I've been thinking about paper prints, but there were technical problems of getting to make a paper print that would then run through a projector. Mm -hmm. um, that's like down the road kind of project. Mm. But I was working with like 
taking expired film and putting it into a container with all sorts of organic materials and allowing it to decompose and seeing what that would look like. I was also making cyanotypes that were like direct cameraless films. Mm -hmm. So they were doing a lot of contact printing. Okay. So contact printing in the sense where you would take like a found object and you would mount it onto a, a surface that is light sensitive and get an exposure. Yes. So I, did that I did a lot of that kind of like cameraless photography calling it photography is a little bit of a weird way of putting it I mean when you use the sun as an exposure bulb and you don't use a camera I mean you're getting an impression of mm-hmm. an object you're taking a trace of a shadow really yeah. yeah so I guess photography is a technical way to describe it but I think it's a little bit more than photography if you will I don't know what term we would call it it finds itself the convergence of photography printmaking and painting in a way yeah. for me. like it's not really it's not really one specific um like technical i mean it's a technical achievement but mm-hmm. i mean you could definitely find connections with printmaking yeah yeah in terms of the history of cyanotype you know like it was originally used as an alternative to illustration of mm-hmm. organic yeah um, blueprint yeah, blueprints of organic uh, organisms for for scientific purposes because using this photographic medium was more accurate. It was more true to life, quote unquote, more so than those who could draw. I see it as a very rudimentary photograph. And if you break down the elements of a camera, so thinking about the substrate holding the ISO, so holding the speed of, of a film, And then you also have the sun, sort of like the idea of a shutter is a more abstract deal. Mm -hmm. So like if you're making like a photogram in in the darkroom, for instance, the minute you expose it to light, like that's the shutter speed, whatever. It's just a speed of whatever, you know? Yeah. But this idea of it shifting between these mediums, is I totally agree, especially with how you were working with the containers and to even make these exposures, they felt like these tiny sculptures when you're working with this way, you're making these physical objects and you're also making them do perhaps the things that, that they weren't really meant to do. So there's this really nice sculptural quality in it as well. Yeah. I really like that you talked about like the sculptural element because um, I definitely, you know, I would use these kind of frames uh, to make the salt prints and they're very simple frames. If you wanted to make a salt print, all you have to do is coat the paper with salt and then coat it with silver nitrate and then Mm -hmm. put it out in the sun for however long that you think you need the exposure to be. Mm -hmm. But what's really important is that the frame is compressing the, um, the flat piece. Yeah. So it has to be flat in order to get a really nice like contoured edge. Yeah. If it's not flat, you'll get like a ghosted edge. And if it's layered on top of each other, like if it's a leaf that has two leaves layered on top, if you get a good exposure, you can actually in some of the ones that I made, I mean, it's really amazing because you can see dimension. Like you can see like dimension in like the values. There is something that feels like more materially um, alive to me uh, with the salt prints that not only speaks about like dimension due to the values that you that were captured with the salt but also the substrate that's used the stuff that you encountered in the dark room that was a lot of like organic leaves and stuff 
that I had found from the local environment um, to kind of really, uh, I guess, express like uh, my impressions of the surrounding local um, areas that I had visited along the Genesee River. I was walking a lot. I borrowed Jessica's bike. She was so generous. I rode a bike everywhere. Yeah. Um, but then I also would go on these long walks along the river and walking has become a really important part of my practice now. And it does make me think of film because it deals with time and it deals with measurement and it deals with space. So I would walk around and collect um, materials and I would film there with my 16 millimeter camera and get more realistic images that were camera based images. But I would also collect um, organic material from the areas and then I would make these salt prints. I don't know if you could say it like an abstract counterpoint to the more realistic images, but um, those plant materials that you encountered were found plant materials from the surrounding local environment. and. I would uh, put them in the frame after coating the paper and then put them out to some light and expose them. And like some of my exposures were like 24 hours. <laughs> I mean, and this and is this was with the salt prints. Yes, it's with the salt prints. Yikes. And, you know, I wasn't a salt pro. There are some people who are salt print making <laughs> pros and they probably will, will point out all the things that I did wrong. But I actually liked it being faint and I don't think I used a very concentrated um, silver nitrate solution. Mm. So that's why they were faint. And when I got the better contrasted ones, I were just like, this is not what I, this is not what I'm going for, I guess, because yeah. I wanted something that was a little bit more like breathing onto a surface or something, yeah. you know, not like yeah. speaking onto a surface. There was a mm -hmm. lot of trial and error with that. Um, and that was just really primer for working with anthotypes because yeah. when you're dealing with plant-based emulsions, I mean, I, you're talking about an exposure <laughs> that would be a few days. Salt prints at least hold the image, but anthotypes fade over time. So, because it's interesting to hear you talk about time, because you are also a filmmaker, and I enjoy hearing filmmakers speak about film in these abstract ways, or even thinking about like the elements or the fundamentals of a film, or even thinking about like a long walk being akin to a film or something that would bring that to mind. Well, so now I'm thinking about these long exposures, these 24 hours 72 hour exposures that you're doing along those lines. Are you making any connections between um, how you're thinking about these walks, how you're thinking about this experimentation and also this, I will just say these photo processes that you are choosing to work with that require such time. So it's, it's elongated time. I mean, especially when thinking about it in terms of how long these exposures took. I mean, I was walking outside from the dark room through the chicken run to the parking lot on a daily basis. Like it, that was my ritual, you know, yeah. back and forth, back and forth. Mm -hmm. So the walking there, there's this kind of rep repetition, right? So there's a repetition of that process that I was engaging in to make these images and trying to encapsulate it in photography is a little bit hard for me because when dealing with an image that's created, that's not with a camera, that's dealing with a long exposure, there's a lot of sensorial like kind of influence that can affect it. Mm -hmm. And you're dealing with cycles of time that deal with like lunar cycles and sun cycles. So mm -hmm. it's like a way of kind of thinking about metric counting, which is mm -hmm. something that comes up a lot when you're working both with 
film because 16 millimeter film is like a series of 24 images per second. Mm -hmm. So this kind of rhythm becomes like a metric or kind of a way of evaluating cycles, time in terms of, you know, now I'm involving the sun. So I'm thinking about the passage of time with day, but then I can also thinking about the passage of time when I'm going from the dark room through the check and run to that parking lot and back and forth yeah, or yeah. walking to destination and returning. I mean, there's also this aspect of contemplation. Mm-hmm. So being contemplative, meditative, more slow kind of way of generating, let's say a record of an experience, mm-hmm. especially now that I'm in a space where I can be for nine months. I think that that con- contemplative activity is definitely going to be informing the work more. Yeah. Um, cause that, that was one of my questions about how this translates. Can you talk about your installation practice? Because I, my interpretation of it is multimedia, multisensory, um, it incorporates sculpture, imagery, and sound. And, um, thinking about this experimentation you were undertaking at VSW and this exploration, I was just kind of wondering how how you use these two periods of time to translate that into a multi-sensory installation experience or how you are seeing even the work that you're making now evolving into that. Yeah. Um, working at VSW was like just incredibly generative for me. I mean, I didn't have any distractions. I had this whole building to myself. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit intimidated because it was just me and the building. <laughs> and I and then I was getting offers during the day to like use more space and I was like oh my gosh this is crazy I have this whole place to myself and you know I mean for anybody who's a listener that has not been to BSW it's two floors and the whole basement has like three different rooms and there was a 16 millimeter room that I started out with and then I migrated to the dark room and then I found myself using the chicken run and using the magic lantern room in the parking lot and and I was working furiously I was working probably 12 hour days like probably 30 days in a row like really taking very few breaks and I think in part it's because I knew that I had access to this kind of facility that I don't think I would have had I didn't think I would have access to um, Mm -hmm. after but in the process of working, making, generating these cyanotype, and I was making photography-based films and photographic images where I would take plant materials and dip them in a solution and mount them onto a photosensitive surface. So this this fundamental of like light and dark. So there's like the parking lot that was a sunlight, the bulb, and then the dark room that was the processing chamber. And this going back and forth, that rhythm just became like again, as I said, my routine. And I would bring what I made downstairs, upstairs, and things would start growing in the studio. I had a lot of equipment in the studio. I had like a a screen, I had rewinds, I had all this equipment accumulated in the studio alongside with some materials that I had brought that I knew that I wanted to kind of use like Mm -hmm. an emergency blanket because I was thinking about silver even before I arrived Mm -hmm. and all the film that I accumulated it was very much kind of experiential kind of laboratory environment that grew in the studio that was in a way became like an echo of the dark room downstairs it was where all this activity was sort of um, growing yeah and then I had access to the other studio Jessica so generously offered it to me. And I was like, whoa, okay, I have another space. 
Um, the other studio is much brighter. There's a lot of light. There's no blinds to really control the light as much. Mm -hmm. And it felt more like a gallery. Hmm. So I ended up putting the salt prints that I had made there alongside with driftwood that I collected along the Genesee River hmm. and placing it into an installation that was a little bit more formal, a little bit more directly echoing my walks along the river mm -hmm. with objects that were found there, um, not so much of a laboratory environment. And then I made the cyanotype and the phytographic film simultaneously and I made a double projection piece. And so I use a screening room. <laughs> so there was there was there was a, the studio that was kind of like the dark laboratory. Yeah, there was a screening room that had the double projection that had both a dark and a light. The uh, cyanotype was more dark. And then the photographic piece was a little bit more light. And it, it was sepia tone that was kind of similar to the salt prints then i had the i call it the photographic studio that had all the salt prints i was using three spaces to show my work during open studios i had done shows before where i used two spaces and thought about them in in sort of in relation to each other mm -hmm. so this mm -hmm. is not really new for my practice but it was pointed out that that i had been using the space kind of similarly to my thought process downstairs hmm. And that the laboratory was kind of like the dark room and yeah. photographic studio was more like the sunlight. <laughs> and what's the bridge? Well, the screening room became the bridge because the screening room had a double projection and had yeah. one light and dark. Um, and it was really nice that that was sort of pointed out to me because I hadn't really thought about that before. So there was a, there was kind of a parallel activity that was going on that was an echoing of the ritual that I experienced. Mm that was really kind of a transplanting of, or, you know, a conversation with what I had actually experienced that became then the expression in the installations that I, that I presented the work with. I have been thinking more and more about breaking down the relationship between art and life. I mean, I went to UCSD, you know, maybe that was part of it. You know, Alan Capra was teaching there a long time ago. He wasn't my teacher, but, you know, it, it, it does have that kind of legacy. I mean, because can you talk about what you mean by that, like breaking down art and life? Um, well, I definitely do allow the senses to inform my work greatly. Mm -hmm. And I think that the experiences that I have in my daily life are very much in conversation with how I think about things in the studio. One very, very like um, revolutionary thing that happened in my life is that I changed my diet. So I only eat whole foods and it's kind of a difficult thing because when I do, you know, meet up with people or have residencies where people feed me, I have a lot of food restrictions. Yeah. But I've, I've turned to nutrition and whole foods as a way to combat some health ailments that I've had. And it's been very challenging for me to go this route and take a whole foods driven lifestyle because mm -hmm. it is a lifestyle. And that's really changed um, my worldview. Yeah. It's changed my worldview, not only in terms of how I can socialize because I, you know, I'm, I'm very, I wouldn't say squeaky clean, but there are a lot of things that I can't eat. So I, you know, I have to, I have to be very vigilant about how I, what I eat and wh where I eat. More so, it's increasingly informed like my studio practice because I'm thinking, 
well, what materials am I working with? Mm -hmm. And even Mm -hmm. though I was pretty low toxic before, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get as non-toxic as possible. And it's not so much, I mean, there's the environmentally healthy aspect of it, which is, I'd like to say that's more of a byproduct rather than like a total pursuit. Okay. Because, because I've changed my worldview because of trying to use nutrition to combat health ailments. Um, a byproduct of that is being environmentally healthy and thinking about sustainability. Yeah. I think is like, for me, I, it's informing my work, hopefully in a way that is less about being, trying to, you know, persuade people to be environmentally conscious, but to, to kind of um, think through the lens of using natural resources that are available um, in a more, in a more critical way. So that's why I was sort of thinking about rethinking the acetate and the polyester base, rethinking mm-hmm. the silver nitrate. And that sort of led me down this whole kind of journey of what I was exploring when I was yeah. PSW. I had always been thinking about the relationship between life and art, but this uh, this, this food thing has brought me down this this incredible journey. So it's, yeah. it's been good. I, for one, am incredibly interested in, in process, but also how I do think of art practice in, the, in a very similar way and am trying to constantly work that into my own practice. I've never heard it put in those particular ways of collapsing this thing between art and life. But one of the things that I was told in grad school was if it's important to you, it will come out in the work. As personal as you can get or as specific to your own experience as you can get, um, you will get to those questions. What What strikes me is how contemplative how how you create these contemplative spaces um and that's also something i for, i left out of my question in terms of this multi-sensory that, that you're using this in in my interpretation of, of even not being able to experience the work in person is this contemplative space that's incredibly open um but you are questioning and getting at things that are very specific um they're abstracted in ways that i um i won't necessarily get it from the work, but what I do get is that you have created this space for a mind to wander or even an encounter with soundscape. Um, and, I, and even you describing walking along the river, just kind of thinking about how you even use the sounds of water. It's, so it's interesting to hear that this is coming very much about these decisions that you've made in your personal life and how it has filtered into how you work with materials and how you observe your body responses to nutrition and getting to something that really is getting at a lot of environmental questions that are ex- especially important in Ryan Rochester, but you know, like the land of Kodak where so many of the resources here have been contaminated through that, that chemistry, you know, as an educator, sometimes it's really hard to convince students to just kind of trust those, those micro decisions or those small decisions that they're making for themselves that that is important enough. Um, I also had a hard time following that collapse of art in life. I did not trust it for years until after, (laughs) after grad school, after um, things in my life changed where I had to think about that again. Like, oh, okay. It makes things a lot easier. (laughs) It's not like you're trying to be like, in two different drawers, like, okay, you know, I'm not a parent, but Mm -hmm. oh, I'm being a parent. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I have to be an artist and just those kinds of like switches. Yeah. Um, When there's more of a flow between 
and I don't even think it's just for artists. I think for scientists or somebody who works in medical field or even somebody who works at the post office. Like, I mean, I think all of it becomes part of a total thing. And I guess that's why I'm interested in installation because I work in a very pluralistic way. Mm-hmm. And it's not the easiest to work with many different materials, especially mm. if you're also working with materials that have a very strong, rich history, photography, ceramics, weaving, mm. glass, metal, you know, like I love all these different, I'm like, I love all these different materials. I, mm-hmm. I'm just very attracted and very curious about the process of making. Um, and it's taken me quite a while to like feel comfortable with like, being shifting and like shifting and oh oh she's working with glass now oh my gosh she was working with photography before what's going on I realized hey you know what I grew up in Oregon and then I moved to Singapore that's a huge shift yes going from like the forests of Oregon to the rainforests of Singapore and for me as a child doing that I had to make connections between various different cultures and landscapes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and for me it was actually nature that felt consistent like the lush green in Oregon and the lush green in Singapore that was like the thing that I could find a thread but it also forced me to push into time and think about like deep time you know through geology think about primitive man and I mean lately I've been thinking about making things that have kind of more enduring ideas, thinking about things that relate to an ancestry mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. thinking about, if we were talking about cycles of time, it's easy to, easier to quantify time through days and months. But then I was like, I think someone, I can't remember who mentioned, I was listening to Braiding Sweetgrass when I was like, I love that <laughs> when, I was, <laughs> when I was a BSW. So maybe there was a little bit of that that was going on in my mind. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, I yeah. started thinking, okay, well, if we count, if we count cycles of time based on generations and we give a generation about 70 years, mm-hmm. 70 generations is like 4,900 years ago. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to communicate with somebody that far back, like, what would it take to try to communicate with someone that far back? Or if I wanted to use my art to communicate with somebody that's 10 generations ahead of me, that is 700 sounds like a lot of time, but if we count them in generations, 10 generations is easier to quantify. Yeah. You know? I, don't, I, I don't think I totally answered your question about art and life, but <laughs> I guess it's, it's like, uh, I think it's beginning to feel more comfortable with the things that I'm attracted to decisions. Making decisions in a studio is a huge part of our practice. Yes. Yeah. Making decisions, going shopping, what to eat, what yeah. book to choose, what movie to watch. That's all part of decision making exactly. too. Yeah. And that's yeah. all part of being alive. I don't know. Maybe that allows like people who are trying to find more of that comfort of breaking down the division between art and life. One doesn't have to strive for it. One is already doing it. Yes. You know? Because I too fell into the trap of trying to articulate what it means to be around a body of water that's contaminated with silver nitrate. Yes. I found myself like shooting around the river. I was like, how do I make sense of like all this contamination and talk about it through the lens of environmentalism? I called the DEC. I was on the phone with so many different bureaucratic departments. And I found myself trying to become a journalist. And I was like, this is not, I'm not a journalist. 
And my translation of it was becoming a little too literal. Hmm. And so when I leaned into a more experiential edge, I became a lot more comfortable with that voice. I mean, my work is also multi-sensory because I, I think a lot about the body, how, how my body has really regenerated after becoming more dependent on nutrition. Mm-hmm. But if, if I look through the lens of the body and when, when we're working in the dark room, we can't see. So we have to touch everything and feel, you know, where the thing is, how hard it is, how soft it is. I remember I was like, sometimes I would get the emulsion because I'm processing 16 film, I get the emulsion side and the base side mixed up. So I'd have to put the film between my lips and do that test. Mm-hmm. Which side is going to stick. So I'm using all my senses to try to make this. There's a teaching, there's a wisdom, there's a language, there's cognitive thinking within that that doesn't get appreciated as much as like empirical evidence that we yes. learn in academia. When I work with materials and there is a whole kind of collective use of my body of all the senses then i can understand better and i guess one thing that made me like feel more comfortable with that also is that i've been reading a book called the living mountain oh. by nan shepherd okay and it's it's um she's a scottish writer i was in scotland so i was like really enamored with the landscape there if you ever have a chance to go, I totally recommend it, especially if you like rocks, Um, but it's beautiful. um, And the people are really nice, but there's this area called the Karen Gorm Mountains, just a very, very beautiful area. Mm -hmm. Man, Shepard wrote about the Karen Gorm Mountains, I think just after World War II. And the book is written in a very sensorial way. Hmm. And a byproduct of her writing is environmentalism. But she doesn't write with a voice to talk about the mountains to be an environmentalist yeah. or to persuade people to be environmentally friendly. She writes it with a very direct experience, both of the splendor as well as the, you know, the challenges of being in a very tough environment. There's a lot of snow and how it can really affect the body. And there's a writer that wrote the the uh, the afterword named Robert McFarlane. Mm-hmm. And he wrote that even though her writing does have kind of an environmental edge, her delivery is so sensorial that it doesn't feel preachy or overtly persuasive. Yeah. I'd rather my work be coming from a direct experience to kind of express some of the things that are meaningful to me mm-hmm. rather than coming from a place that's like, this is a critique of this, you yeah. know? Initially, when I was like examining like the river from such a critical standpoint, mm-hmm. I found myself getting stuck in this literal translation. And once I kind of like gave space and removed myself from that and gave some space to allow things that I've observed, even intuitively or coincidentally, like a walk, you know, um, there was more space and there, there's more breathing room for some of those intuitive interpretations to, to, to speak louder. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I'm back and forth between Brooklyn and Rochester. <laughs> you talked about, I'm like based in these two places. I do not have a long history in Rochester, but as you're speaking, I was thinking of how it leaves me more space to think about um, the history of people 
but not necessarily within the context of just Kodak, but this everyday experience, these these smaller moments that would get negated or neglected or dismissed when there is um, like a more didactic slant to like a message because a lot of those experiences are incredibly important in how people engage with the environment or how people even become interested or even grow in um, rage or anger or worry. Those things are um, sometimes put to the wayside because they're not actionable things. All of those experiences accumulate to present in a way that would make one concerned and would make one concerned to the point of action. But because, you know, there are all these other complicated and small things that factor into how how do you make this decision or how do you get to this opinion? It doesn't just happen out of thin air or the ether. And it also doesn't happen or isn't created out of the most obvious things. It really is this these like small and and incredibly valuable moments. The challenge is seeing those things as being valuable. You know, this might be the benefit of being a minority. I don't know. Like I, I mean, not only am I Asian, but like having this weird background of being American and then going to Asia, like this is the reverse, reverse immigration, you know, but I'm also left-handed. I'm a twin. I'm born on a cusp of like Virgo and Libra. Like they're just, it's just, it's not the best, like, you know, that I, you know, I have to suffer for whatever reason, but Mm -hmm. I mean, just even taking being left-handed, for example, like you just kind of, you, I don't know, you're probably right. I'm also left-handed, so. Oh my no. gosh, okay, left high yes. <laughs> So you know. Yes, That's like I know. a starting point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, you know, it's like, we all know, we got to sit at the corner of the yeah. table and that's Exactly, there's corner. only one, <laughs> one part of the aisle you can sit in and, you know, the way we write and, and everything, it's, it's, yes. it's embedded. You have to, yes. where you sit, where I sit on the train to come up to Rochester. I mean, I'm, I'm left-handed. Like, how, how am I going to move my very, very dominant arm to do the things that exist in a world that's not made for people with this dominant arm? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, you already start paying attention to something that is like against normal. Yeah. 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 Oh, wait a minute. Like I can't sit here. I can't sit at this desk because this desk is for righties. Yes. You know, so, um, but I guess what I'm saying is that like, maybe that sort of that situation has enabled me to already notice that I'm in kind of an alt alt space. Yeah. So like, okay, well, if I start paying attention to that and like allowing, I'm going to veer off back into art making. It's like, if I start paying attention to things, like for example, when I brought all the um, equipment into the studio, I wasn't necessarily thinking of uh, allowing it to be part of like a laboratory environment or even part of this installation that I was creating. Uh, But over time I was just like, okay, well, this is, this is actually, I really want to, I want to allow this equipment to be part of the space. Mm -hmm. So it's also like allowing the process to inform the making has like now kind of spilled into like what's going on in my studio in Galveston. It's like I'm doing a bit of weaving, weaving with film, weaving with string and 
I had to do a direct warp onto my loom and I had this ladder inside of my studio because I didn't have a proper way to like um, prepare my loom. So I had to use the ladder and I was stretching out string into my studio. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And it probably will show up in an installation. <laughs> but, you know, last year I was doing wood firing with a kiln uh, and I really like um, making ceramics with like atmospheric environments. So mm -hmm. using like organic materials to affect the glaze color of the clay um, or something might break and then I'll repair and consume it. I was doing this wood firing for the first time and to do wood firing is really involved because you literally have to fire this kiln like with logs of wood until it goes over like 2000 degrees. So you're doing this for a few days and mm. it's a real commitment there's a whole sensorial kind of experience of yeah. like trying to make that happen with the body. The clay itself is also taking in like a record of that environment. So it seems like I might be jumping between materials. There's always a consistent kind of flow as I move from material to material. To material. Yeah. I think that's really wonderful and it makes total sense to me. Um, but anything that you want to say, in closing or in conclusion about how you see the trajectory of your work? Yeah. Um, so I talked a lot about the body, um, but also, you know, the external environment is also kind of thinking about that and how that's a factor, whether it's a controlled environment that's man-made by the individual, such as like putting chemicals into, you know, a processing tank, mm -hmm. right? So that's a controlled environment or whether it's the individual in a different kind of environment. Like I'm in Galveston and it's like 90 degrees and everybody else is like 50 degrees, 50. you know? <laughs> um, but I, I think also how like natural elements have an effect on the subject matter, something that is going to be informing my work continually. Like, I think I was thinking a lot about sunlight and how sunlight affects um, you know, photochemical and sensitive surfaces. Um, last year, I was thinking a lot about heat. Mm. And it seems like everywhere I've been going this year, it's been a lot of water, a lot of coasts, a lot of, um, and like coastal environments have been like really um, an influence to me. Mm. Uh, and thinking about like man's like relationship with nature and the kind of encroachment that we have on nature and how we can live alongside wildlife and plant life without being so having such a heavy footprint um it's not so much that i want to have my work like be overly critical about it it's more that because i'm thinking about relationships between the individual and then the individual society and then maybe the cosmic it's like how do these kind of echoes across micro macro occur um as parallels does that make sense yeah all right lily um thank you so much this has been really wonderful to talk to you and i'm still recording <laughs> It's like almost two hours. I, love me. I don't think anybody would listen to all two hours of it, but I think that's great. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll put it. And there you have it. 
I encourage you to visit Lily's website to see her updated works. Her site is lilychen.org. As for the Vigil Studies Workshop, please visit us at bsw.org, where we have information about the project-based residency, upcoming events both in person and online, and follow us on Twitch and Instagram at the Vigil Studies Workshop. And feel free to send me an email at ernezdavis at bsw.org. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with artist and current Galveston Artist-in-Residency resident, Lily Chin. Stay tuned for the next episode. And until then, please take care. Bye.